right, everyone, I think we're ready to get started. I've got 12.30. So welcome to our weekly study. We're in Leviticus. How many of you knew that? <laughs> Good, some are paying attention. We're getting there, yes. Leviticus is in the Bible. It's in this thing called the Old Testament. No, we... Um, we're, last week we entered into the second half of the book of Leviticus, so that's where we are this week. We are continuing in 18 through the latter chapters of Leviticus, particularly 18 through 20, is known as like the heart of the holiness code. That's what scholars have called it, because the phrase, be holy for I am holy, is everywhere throughout these, this section. And Leviticus 18 begins the, uh, Leviticus 18 is the sex chapter. This is a chapter that every adolescent boy learns in the Bible study when they first realize it. Yeah. They do, oh, this is in the Bible? And, and then you start reading it, and the rest of the stuff, you don't know what to make of it. But this, you, you know what these words mean. And <clears throat> there's, there's a lot of that, actually, in the Bible. There's a lot of stuff that, that it's rare to hear a sermon preached from Leviticus 18. However, this is the key. The New Testament presupposes that you know Leviticus 18. When the, when, in the book of Acts, we're going to talk a little bit set up today and then we'll, we'll get through it this week and next week. But Because it's the most controversial chapter, obviously, in Leviticus. But in the book of Acts, so here's the situation. You have all these Jews that are believing in Jesus as their Jewish Messiah because he was Jewish and they're Jewish. And for them, salvation of Israel was the salvation of the world. I mean, that's what Jews look forward to, the salvation of Israel. And Israel being raised up, the Messiah coming forth, all the nations bowing and serving the Messiah. So when Jesus came on the scene, resurrected, ascended into heaven, told his followers, go and take the gospel to the world, and I'm coming back, then that sort of put a different spin on things in their eyes. And they realized, oh, it's not about making, it's not, it's not just a one-time thing. Messiah comes and then everything happens. But rather, it's Messiah appears, does his first task as priest, and then when he returns, will return as conquering king. So in the meantime, our goal is to extend that reign, extend his kingdom throughout the land to all the nations. And part of that, and what they wrestled with in the book of Acts, the first 15 chapters, is they wrestled with, so what does this mean for Gentiles? Because the Jews, they were fine. They had their scriptures. They had the prophets. Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophets. So they just, he was what they were looking for. Then Gentiles started coming to faith. In, in large numbers that started believing in this Jewish Messiah. So the question became, okay, if you're a Gentile and you come to faith in Jesus, that means that like the Old Testament promised, you're coming to Israel. But in the Old Testament, when you came and joined yourself with Israel, you, you took on Torah as your covenant and you became what's called a proselyte. You became a, con a convert to Judaism. That means that you, if you weren't circumcised, you got circumcised. That's the big buffer that kept a lot of people out. Uh, adults don't typically want you cutting away at their private parts. So that was kind of a, mm, that, that kept people at a distance from Judaism. But some would, and they would go all the way, and they would then fully become Jews. They would keep Torah, they would keep kosher diets, they would do all the high holidays, everything. Well, with the coming of the Messiah and the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost, um, it, it, the church had to rec, rec, wrestle with and reconcile the fact that that covenant, the, the Mosaic Sinai covenant, had come to its completion in the Messiah. 
And now the new age of the new covenant had dawned, and that new covenant that was talked about, Jeremiah chapter 31, Ezekiel chapter 36, Joel chapter 2, that new covenant that would be like the first covenant in some ways, but different from it in other ways, that new covenant was now, uh, had been inaugurated. And part of the new covenant, part of the longing of the prophets was that all of the Gentiles would stream to Israel and that the distinction between Israel and Gentiles would eventually, God would actually do away with that distinction so that, that all of the earth would be one people. And that would be a fulfillment of the promise to Abraham in your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So this is a tra you can trace this throughout the prophets in their visions of what God's going to do on the day of the Lord. So. All well and good. So they realized, the early church realized, hey, we're, we are now living in this day of the Lord. Peter stands up at Pentecost and, and quotes Joel 2, which is a prophecy of what would happen in the last days or latter days. So they realized, okay, we're in these days. So now what does that mean for these Gentiles coming in? Because the whole purpose of Torah, of the Sinai covenant with Israel part, was to lead the nation of Israel to be a light of the world, to bring forth the Messiah, to shine the light to, of God to the Gentiles, and then the new covenant would be inaugurated. So what changes between the old covenant and the new covenant? What remains between the old covenant and the new covenant? Things changed, like the food laws. Those changed. In other words, they, those were the things that delineated and separated Israel from the nations. So those, when, when the Gentiles started coming in, those food laws, the, the early church realized, and Jesus had set the example, that... that it's not what goes into you that defiles you, it's what comes out of you that defiles you. And Paul himself says, I realize in Romans, all food is, is, is clean if you receive it as clean from God and give thanks. So there became this tension among Jews and Gentiles. And the early church called a council, like one of the first ecumenical councils. It was all the leaders in Jerusalem. And they, when they heard about from Paul and his companions that these Gentiles were coming to faith, and not just were the Gentiles were believing, but the thing was they were receiving the same Holy Spirit that the early church had received at Pentecost. That same Holy Spirit that filled Jesus' first Jewish followers was being poured out among the Gentiles. And they were doing the miracles. They were speaking in tongues, new languages. They were doing all of this stuff that the, the Jewish believers in Jesus were doing. So the church had to realize, they had to get together and say, hey, what's going on here? Uh, what's God doing among the Gentiles? So they had this meeting, and you can read about it in Acts 15, but the culmination of it was they issued a letter that would be sent to all the Gentiles, where Paul and Barnabas and his people would go and teach in all the world. And the letter basically says, we, can't, we, you know, we don't want to hinder what God's doing. He's bringing you to faith in his, his Messiah, and that's amazing. And, and we realize that God has not called you to faith in Jesus through the route of keeping the Levitical covenant, God has called you as Gentiles directly to Israel's Messiah. So therefore, we are not laying on you all of the things of Torah, because those were a shadow and a hint and a, and a, and a preview of coming attractions of what the Messiah would be. So you don't have to, if you're Gentile, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to keep the high holidays. You don't have to obey the food laws that Israel uh, obey. You don't have to dress in the manner that Israel dressed in, in terms of like not mixing fibers, and you don't have to plant your fields in the way that, because those were laws for Israel, specifically for Israel, for the ethnic Jewish descendants of Abraham and all who would unite with them in covenant faith under Mount Sinai's covenant. So you don't have to do those. However, it says, here is what we require of you. 
Here is the, the bottom line what you need to do in terms of ethics. And it gave them like four things that they were to avoid that characterized the pagan Gentile world. They were to avoid uh, participating in sacrifices in the, in the Roman pagan Greek temples. Because that's idolatry. That's not just a thing for Israel. That's for all people. Idolatry is bad. So now that you've come to faith in Jesus, Jesus and idols don't mix. So no idolatry. And, in, and, and even the regulation that we read last week about not eating blood, that was binding on the Gentiles. They said, you are not to eat the blood. You are not to. And, and there were all kinds of reasons for people to eat blood. Maybe it had to do with idolatry. Maybe it had to do with absorbing the essence of the animal. Whatever it is, that prohibition remained. And so it was when you, when you eat meat, you are to pour out the blood. You're not to consume it. So they laid that on the Gentiles. And then um, they laid on one of the things was you're not to engage in porneia. They use that Greek term, porneia. And porneia is a general catch-all term. That's where we get the term pornography. And it means sexual immorality, which is how the New Testament in IV and others translate it. And it means basically illegitimate sexual relationships. You're not to have illegitimate sexual relationships. What does that mean? Well, it presupposes... The, the letter that the, were written to the Gentiles, its foundation looks back to Leviticus 17 through 20. And so there's a regulation about blood, there's a regulation about uh, sacrifices to idols, there's a regulation about sexual behavior. And so for the early church, the holiness code, what we read in Leviticus 18, was seen as this is part of the Torah that reflects a deeper ethic of God for his people, for all people. Unlike the other parts of Leviticus, which are geared and directed at Israel, this part of Leviticus is directed at Israel, but it's, it's set up in such a way it's saying, here's how you're going to be Israel, because the nations that you come from and the nations into which you're going do not do these things, and, and, or do these things, and I want you to not do these things. In other words, it was an, it was an ethic that looked out at the practices of the nations and said these practices, unlike wearing garments of two types of thread, unlike eating uh, unclean animals, unlike these other things, these practices are eternally uh, or universally abhorrent to God. God does not approve of these practices, not just within Israel, but any of the nations that do these things. And the irony is, the kicker is, that some of the practices that he noted were practices that brought about Israel's very being in the first place. And what God is, and I'll tell you what I mean by that in a minute, but what God's saying is, in the past, your ancestors even had did some of these things. You're not to do them. God is setting his standard at Mount Sinai for his people, but he's setting it in contrast to the ethics of the nations of the world that the people are being placed right in the middle of. So, and then in the New Testament, when they're looking at what should the Gentiles do, how should they act, do they have to keep all Torah? No, but they didn't jettison the core of what we know of as Leviticus 17 through 20. That was actually kept. It was reworded. It wasn't kept as Levitical law. It, the spirit of it, the teaching of it, the ethic of it was kept and was, was renewed in the gospel. So this is important because in our society... There's a, there's a whole society-wide debate about sexuality. 
it's nothing new. It's been going. Those of you that lived through the '60s, most, some of you in here probably went to Woodstock. So this is nothing new <laughs> about our society. But it's an ongoing debate. The society, the society that in which God's people live, has a sexual ethic, and the society that God wants His people to uh, manifest has a different sexual ethic, and it's always been that way from Leviticus and even before. So the question then becomes, how do we as God's people live in a society with one sexual ethic, with a different sexual ethic, without closing ourselves off from the culture, isolating ourselves like the Essenes did in the desert, in the Dead Sea area, and just saying to hell with the rest of the world, literally, we're going to keep ourselves holy. How do we avoid that mindset? Because that is disobedient to the Great Commission. But how do we avoid the other mindset of saying, this is our sexual ethic, and by force of law, we will require you all to keep our sexual ethic? That's theocracy. And again, you don't see that in the New Covenant either. So how do you avoid those two extremes? That's a challenge that Christians have faced. Furthermore, how do you balance which parts of the Old Testament are still binding and which parts you can do away with? Because a lot of times, Christians will... In, when engaging the culture on sexual issues, they'll point to Leviticus 18 and they'll say, see, see, what you're doing is an abomination. And then the somewhat savvy critic will point back and say, turn the page and you'll see that you shaving your beard is an abomination. So the question remains, how then do we know which laws are binding, which laws aren't? Do we pick and choose? Do we do the ones that we can keep and the ones that we can't keep we jettison? Do we do like Seventh-day Adventists and try to keep all of them that we can physically keep and say they're still binding? Um, do, do we, or do we just do like some Christians and say, well, it's all Old Testament, so we don't keep any of it anymore. We're all under grace. Well, the early church of Acts 15 certainly didn't think that was the case. So there's a balancing act. It's called hermeneutics, and that's a fancy way of saying Bible interpretation. It's how do you interpret Scripture? And this is an area where the church as a whole has largely failed its people and, in, and, and as a result of that has largely failed the culture. Because what we are taught to do for the most part, especially if you're an evangelical Christian, you, are, you learn your theology through proof texting. You, you likely learn your theology from a, a theologian or a preacher or somebody with letters after their name and they've come to you and they've given you, okay, here's a list of the things that the Bible says about blank. And it's just verse, 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 verse. Okay, well, that's what the Bible says about blank. What does the Bible say about this other thing? Verse, 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 verse. And what that does is that creates a buffet. <laughs> like we're enjoying today. Uh, but with many more options. And so you end up saying, well, I like this verse. I'm going to keep that one. This one, I don't want to keep that one. So that must be Old Testament. That must be relegated to what we don't have to keep. And it doesn't work that way. I mean, it does for a lot of people, unfortunately. So when a critic says, well, the Bible says that this type of sexual behavior is, is abomination, but it also says that eating shrimp is an abomination. So we can eat shrimp and do whatever we want sexually. It's not that, that's not how it works. That's not how biblical Christianity works. That's not how thoughtful, exegetical study of scripture has worked throughout church history. There is an underlying method by which we read scripture, and that's what we're trying to ingrain in this study over the span of years that we've been doing it, is to see the big narrative curve, the narrative arc of scripture, where it's headed, where it's pointing. It's sometimes it's called the redemptive hermeneutic, where God enters into his people where they are and points them to a more 
holy or a more um, a place that more reflects his intentions, even though he doesn't give them fully all the way. So he will enter into and present them a sexual ethic in the Old Testament, and and that ethic, the underlying ethic, will remain throughout the whole Old and New Testament. But it will be manifest in the Old Testament in certain practices that are cultural bound, and those cultural bound practices do somewhat change over time. Things like leveret marriage, things like um, the, how God handles divorce, how God handles plural marriages in the Old Testament time, which were common, which were the norm. How does he handle those within a culture? And then when we get to the gospel and then we see how the gospel takes it and ramps it up even higher, where Jesus takes the Old Testament sexual ethic and he doesn't negate it, he actually elevates it and makes it even more stringent. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, if you look at a woman and you want to commit adultery with her, if you desire, if you crave to commit adultery with her, not if you look at her and think she's hot. No, if you look at her and want to possess her, then you've already committed adultery in your heart. So Jesus raises the ethic of the Old Testament. He doesn't negate it. He never negates it. So people say, well, Jesus didn't talk about sexual issues, especially like homosexuality or whatever. Oh, yes, he certainly did. He absolutely did. Matthew 15, he uses the term porneia, which is the term that describes these things. And he says that is part of the evils that come from within you that defile a person. So when you hear, well, Jesus never mentioned, no, he did. He absolutely did. You just don't know the terms well enough to understand what he's actually saying. What he's saying is very clear that sexual integrity is essential to being a follower of Jesus. And therefore, there are certain relationships and certain sexual practices which being a follower of Jesus does not allow. So as a follower of Jesus, which is a continuation of being a follower of Yahweh in the, at Sinai, then there is always a sexual ethic that we are called to. It's going to be different from our culture and it's going to stand out. It's going to be peculiar. It's going to be in conflict. In America, as Christians, we, for the past 50, maybe 100 years, have been, some would say, fortunate. I don't know if it's would say fortunate or not because of what it's done to our ability to think and reason through Scripture. But for good or bad, we've lived in a Judeo-Christian culture when it comes to the sexual ethic that was largely everyone kind of agreed with for about 100, 150 years or so. Until around the 50s and 60s, you know, when Kinsey started doing sexual behavior studies, then the sexual revolution in the 60s, the rise of a radical feminist theology, not responsible feminist theology, but the radical kind that seeks to do away with gender distinctions altogether, which is then rolled into what we have now today, where it, everything about gender and sexuality is fluid and changing, and all of that stuff, that wasn't in existence for most of our country's history. So Christians kind of just got along well with the sexual ethic of the culture, for the most part. And then recently, it's come back into conflict again. And what we find ourselves in now, our culture, American culture in the 21st century, is much closer to Greco-Roman culture in the 1st century than, uh, than anything else. So when we read the New Testament, when we read the New Testament's teaching on sexuality, it is very relevant, surprisingly relevant. If we understand the background and the culture of the New Testament, it's surprisingly relevant for what we are going through today. Just a few little cosmetic changes. And that is surprisingly reminiscent of the culture back in Canaan and Egypt, into which God originally called his people from and into. So I, I want to make that clear today as we're setting up and, and looking this week and next week at Leviticus 18, is God is always 
called his people to a countercultural countercultural sexual ethic. It doesn't mean that God has called his people to police the outside Gentile, Gentile meaning non-Christian world. What he's called his people to do is to reflect his sexual ethic to that world. And, and Paul flat out will say to the Corinthians, he says, I, I wrote you in the previous letter not to associate with people that are sexually immoral. And he uses the word pernea. He says, but I didn't at all mean people outside the church who are sexually immoral. Otherwise, you'd have to close yourself off from society. He said, rather, I wrote to you to not have anything to do to, to expel those among you who claim to be Christians yet live in sexual immorality. That's what Paul, so Paul's view, what we do, especially in times of political season, uh, campaign season, is we want, to, we want to start policing the culture with the New Testament sexual ethic. And what Paul says is, no, 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 no. God will handle that. Let's turn, judgment begins in the house of the Lord. Let's focus on our sexual ethic within the kingdom. And once our house is in order, maybe then we can start telling the Gentiles how their houses need to be. But for, for the most part, the challenge, the ongoing challenge in every church age is just to get believers to live up to the sexual ethic that God calls them to. And I see that in ministry with young adults and college students for the past, like going on almost 20 years now, is it's amazing how people have that disconnect that they can be Jesus-loving, worship-singing, church-going Christians and yet live lives of sexual morality. And, and there's no disconnect in their mind. There's, I hear from, from single, older single Christian women, <coughs> friends of mine, that uh, when they do dating in the dating world, they, they meet guys at church or on Christian dating sites or whatever, and then the relationship doesn't work because the woman says, well, no, I'm not having sex until we're married. And the Christian guy is just baffled by that. <coughs> and it's, 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 it's a symptom of a deeper disease among the church of biblical illiteracy and a lack of discipleship when it comes to the most controlling area of our lives, which is our sex drive. Whether, no matter your relationship status, no matter your experience, your sex drive is, is a foundational part of who we collectively are as a society. Yeah, there are people that are asexual. Yes, there are people that just don't care about it. Yes, there are people that are just over it because all they've ever known is really bad sex. But the, the drive of who we are, that desire to know and to be known, to be naked and to be unashamed, that is intrinsic to every single person. And it is what drives so much of what goes on in the world. So, of course, when people say, well, if God created these billions of galaxies in this whole universe, why does he care what people do in their bedrooms? Well, that's a, that's, that's a very strange view of God from a biblical perspective. Because all of that stuff was created for the purpose of this relationship between God and his people. And the relationship between God and his people is manifest in some small, faint, echoing way in the relationships between people. And, and nowhere is that more evident than in the sexual relationship. Which is, which is very much a reflection of the nature of God. So much so that the one book of the Bible that is completely and utterly about really passionate sex has been spiritualized and allegorized by people over the centuries as being about God and his people. Because even though they get squeamish at the sex imagery in it, they can still recognize that that desire for intimacy is a reflection of what God wants with his people. And that's the book of the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, if you haven't 
read it. But it's right in the middle of our Bible. So in the biblical God is absolutely concerned with what goes on in people's bedrooms because that is the most intrinsic part of who people are as male, female created in his image. So of course he's going, that was the first thing that was attacked. Those of you that were, when we were here when we studied Genesis, a few of you probably remember, the first relationship that was attacked by sin and death was the relationship of the man and the woman who were naked and unashamed. They were living in sexual bliss. They were commanded to be fruitful and multiply. They were given everything they needed. It was perfect. And then sin, sin entered in and fractured that relationship. And the rest of Genesis was just the snowball effect of how it had ramifications against brother against brother and then people against each other and it just built up until God said enough I've got to cleanse the world because of how polluted it has become through violence and through sexual oppression and through all of the ways that humans can rebel and so the, the notion that God is a God who doesn't care what we do with our private parts <laughs> is anything but a biblical notion he very much cares why? Because he doesn't want us to have any fun? No, not at all, because he wants us to have the most fun. He wants us to have the most fulfillment. He knows that anything that is not a sexual relationship that he blesses and has created us to enjoy is a cheap imitation that only desensitizes and turns us away from what he wants it to be. And we as a society and even as a church have often settled for instead of for the thing that he desires. So when he causes people out, when he redeems his people out of slavery and causes them to serve him as their new master, as their new uh, king, as their new savior, he does so, he gives them an ethic that deals at its heart with how they should behave sexually. And so Leviticus 18 presents it. Leviticus 19 gives some more around that area and also how they'll live in their daily lives as a people. And then Leviticus 20 bookends it with, and this is going to be the punishment for those in my kingdom, in my covenant, who decide, nope, I'm not going to follow it. I'm going to break that and go the way of the nations. So that's this little section we have, 18 through 20, that we'll be in for the next couple of weeks. So just real quick, we'll finish up by looking at how it opens Chapter 18, and then we'll dive into it next week, into all the naughty bits. Chapter 18, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am Yahweh your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I'm bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. No one is to approach any close relative to have sexual relations. I am the Lord. So the first thing that he begins this with is incest. It's out. It's out of bounds. No one is to approach any, and the Hebrew phrase is like closeness of flesh. It just means close relative. And, uh, and that phrase, to have sexual relations, this is where the NIV overinterprets, I think. Um, the phrase to have sexual relations literally is to uncover the nakedness of. It's this phrase to uncover the nakedness of. To, to, it uses this verb galah, which means to lift the veil, to uncover, and it uses this term aruth, which means 
this area. <laughs> it's nakedness. It's nudity. It's sexual nakedness. Not nudity of like bathing or, or there's a word for normal nudity in Hebrew. This is the word for nakedness. This is sexual nudity. This is explicit nudity. This is the type of nakedness that should be only between the two whom God has created and joined together in covenant. This is marital nudity. And so the phrase that's used throughout the whole chapter in the NIV, it's translated as uh, have sexual relations with. That is every time you see it, that is uncover the nakedness of. And God begins it by saying, uh, you're not going to do that among close relatives. Now, why? Is that a big problem? We look at that and even even secular society today goes, ew. Like it's people that will push and fight hard for marriage equality. I always kind of poke them back and say, what do you mean by marriage equality? You mean gay marriage? That's just be honest. That's what you're saying. Because if if uh, if two men walk into the county clerk or two women, and they say we want to get married, you'd celebrate that. But if they say we want to get married and this is my sibling, then you would say, ooh, no. Even if they can't have kids, even if we're not talking about genetic abnormalities and all that kind of stuff, even if it's just two people, you recognize intrinsically as a secular culture that, that two brothers or two sisters or a, or a mother and an adult child, that does not fly. There is a taboo against that, even in secular society. And so that's something that uh, Leviticus starts with that because the nations from which they came and the nations into which they were going regularly practiced that. The Egyptian pharaohs consolidated their power by marrying siblings, keeping their marriages within their family, not marrying outside of the family. That's how they maintained power bases, one of the ways. The Canaanites committed sexual practices that if, if you wanted to issue, if you wanted to assert dominance over your family, then one of the ways of doing that was to take one of your father's wives or concubines and have sex with them. Much like in prison today, it showed dominance, not romance. And they practiced that in Canaan. And the kicker is they even did that in Israel's history. Those of you who remember Genesis, remember Reuben? Remember why Reuben's not listed as the firstborn son in, or, or as the prized son when Jacob's pronouncing his blessings? Because Reuben slept with one of his father's mistresses. So the practices that are going to be outlined in Leviticus 18 that God's going to say you will not do are practices that were common in the ancient world. Egypt, Canaan, even in Israel's history, even among the patriarchs, even among Abraham. But we're out of time, so we'll get to that in the next week. So there's your preface for Bible sex. Come back next week. We'll have some examples. It'll get a little more explicit, and um, it'll be interesting. So, uh, see you next week.